Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Can Poetry Save the World? Poets Padraig Otuma and Marie Howe weigh in. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio, a podcast from This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Isabel Salas, a senior at Calvin College and a student fellow at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. On today's episode, Padraig Otuma and Marie Howe, in a conversation with Michael Law of Boston College, discuss the political possibilities of poetry, to bear witness, to inspire the moral imagination, and to provide perspective on our neighbors' lives and the world around us. A poet, theologian, and group worker, Padraig Otuma is the leader of Corimila Community, an interdenominational church in Belfast dedicated to conflict transformation and church reconciliation. Otuma has published and edited collections of poetry, essays, and theology, including readings from the Book of Exile, Sorry for Your Troubles, and In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. Working with groups in Ireland, Britain, Australia, and the United States, he leads workshops and retreats on storytelling, spirituality, and conflict resolution. The Poet Laureate of New York State from 2012 to 2014, Marie Howe has published four collections of verse. Her books include The Good Thief, which was chosen for the National Poetry Series by Margaret Atwood, What the Living Do, an elegy to her brother John, who died of an AIDS-related illness, The Kingdom of Ordinary Time, and Magdalene, Poems. Her poems have appeared in many publications, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Poetry, Plowshares, and The Partisan Review. Howe has received fellowships from the Bunting Institute at Radcliffe College, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Academy of American Poets, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. She has taught at Sarah Lawrence College, Columbia University, and NYU. And now, from the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing, Marie Howe, Padre Gotuma, and Michael Law. Good morning, everybody. My name is Micah Lott. I teach in the philosophy department at Boston College. And the title of this conversation, uh, I think it's Poetry in the Body Politic, or uh, something like that was the title that was given. And so um, I was thinking, since you all, in different ways, have both engaged in poetry and public life, or the public presentation of poetry, you were the Poet Laureate of the State of New York. I was. Um, mm-hmm. Were you a government employee during no that way. time? No way. No, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know if you had a small pension from no. the state. No. Uh, but, and you have done a lot of public poetry as well in the, um, uh, the, the Cory Mula community. And I was thinking about how, for a lot of people, a lot of, maybe a lot of people uh, like me at least, poetry is primarily thought of as a, a private thing, something you do at home or if you do it, if you read poetry at all, you read it at home and uh, perhaps alone. Um, and our public language is often very prosaic or even worse, jargony, bureaucratic kind of language. I wonder if you all would start by any reflections you have about potential, the, the public potential for poetry or experiences you've, you ha- you've, perhaps you've had with poetry in common spaces or how you think about the public and the private. Um, dimensions of the reading or writing of poetry? Um, I think that poetry can be something of a common heart. Uh, I think poetry is what gathers people around. When I was 15, there was a, a 
boy and a girl in my class and they'd been going out for six months. Mm -hmm. It was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Six whole months. Like we were all invested in this. And when they broke up, it was like a soap opera. And I sat next to the guy for chemistry and he was not interested in poetry. But I saw him in the back of his chemistry book writing um, in, in verse form. And I would never dare to look at it because there is a certain privacy of such poems. However, there is a way within which so many of us turn to form when we're in need. And form can capture our desire, it can capture our hope, it can capture our lamentation or protest. And I have seen over and over where public language often can feel like it is infused with jargon, as you say, Micah, but I think poetry can sometimes surprise us because hopefully if the poem is doing its work, you can't predict where it will go just by hearing the, the first line or the title. Hopefully, if the poem is doing that, you will be thinking, what's coming? And it's rare, unfortunately, in civic life where you hear the beginning of an interview on the radio, for instance, and you think, what's coming? Often what happens is you think, I can write the script. Uh, and you might agree with one side and disagree with the other, but you can write the script and the same questions will be asked and the same insults exchanged and the same equivalency established and the same fruitless public language will be engaged in. And one of the things I think poetry does, if it's doing its work, is to bring us to the heart of something that is either a unitive question that we gather around that creates a community together or it creates something where you thought, I did not expect that. And then you're left with, what did you think? Which is something new based on the experience of the poem that you wouldn't have known previous to coming to that experience of listening. And so I think poetry has extraordinary um, common value. There's a poet, Desmond Egan, who wrote a poem, a really, really short poem about Northern Ireland. It's called The Northern Ireland Question. Mm. And there's a word in this that you might know, but you'll know it. It's tig. It's just a game of catch that you play when you're children you're on, and then mm -hmm. you run after me, and then I'm on. And here's the poem, it's really short. Uh, the, Nor the Northern Ireland question is the poem's title, Desmond Egan, here's the poem. Two wee girls are playing tig near a parked car. How many counties would you say their scattered fingers are worth? Again. Two wee girls are playing tig near a parked car. How many counties would you say their scattered fingers are worth? Mm -hmm. What an extraordinary poem. So embodied. And then this massive question, the Northern Ireland question. It's a century old question now, but he lands you right into the singular narrative, into the fingers, not just the body, but the fingers of children playing near a parked car that had a bomb in it. How many <coughs> counties would you say their scattered fingers are worth? It's a question about counting, a question about the value of a life, the value of a hand. And that poem has such currency. Because if you were to turn on the radio and the presenter were to say, today we will be discussing the Northern Ireland question, phone in. Oh God, I turn it off. It drives me mad because you can predict it already. However, this poem goes right to the heart of it. And that's the value of public poetry. Is that a poem that many people would know in yeah, Northern Ireland? Currency, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Seamus Heaney, um, whatever you say, say something. Uh, he, he spoke around uh, the turn, the Good Friday Agreement, where he spoke about this time occasionally when hope and history rhyme. Mm -hmm. He just captured the moment. Michael Longley also captured the moment in a poem that he wrote about ceasefire. Uh, extraordinary way within which cultures turn to poetry like that. Because poetry, I think, is supposed to be like an icon. In iconography, the idea is that when you look at an icon, it's also looking back at you and you're looking through each other. And that, I think, is what art can be in public life when it captures the moment. Hmm. Well, I'm thinking about the quote. Um, oh, my gosh. Now, hold on. I'm at that age where the name takes a few minutes. Do you know what I mean? To come. Who wrote Middlemarch? George Eliot. George Eliot said, thank you. There is no public, there's no private life that is not determined by a public life. The private life and the public life are not separate. Um, people of color know that, women know that, gay people know that, a lot of us who have been pushed to the margins know that. Um, all of us know that, that, that the private life and the public life are 
utterly connected. Politic the politics of this room, for example, have already been set up. We're on this thing. You're not. <laughs> What's that about, you know? So that, I mean, we have to be seen, I suppose, but that's the conversation, you know, everything is political, everything is ordered. Uh, people order themselves when you sit down at a table. You know, who's gonna sit where? So I, I see poetry is the original song of the human life. I believe the first poem was a lullaby. When we were sitting around the fire and a baby was fretful and a woman sang, said something that was repetitive and cooing and, um, and the sound of the thing, it was the sound of sense, what Robert Frost calls, which, which was the sound of someone saying, I'm here, it's okay, I'm here, you're not alone. I'm here, you're not alone. And poetry for me has always said that. It said, I'm here, you're not alone. Step into this place where there are no opinions. What you were saying about the radio show, what we can't tolerate anymore is people calling with their opinions. Poetry cannot be paraphrased and it can't be reduced to something. The best poems are the poems that hold the unsayable, the, un the irreducible. Um, something in the heart of the poem that we feel and intuit but really cannot name. And that space is a space where we inhabit as readers and the writer inhabits as mystery. So that writers don't know any more than anybody else. No writer is wiser than us or smarter. Everybody alive has suffered as much, has known as much joy but the writer loves to be in the presence of something that wants to be born from her or him that can hold the complexity of being alive and knowing that we're alive and we're dying at the same time and knowing that we can love someone and hate them and knowing that we want peace but we're really pissed off and the, all the complexity. Um, so, but I do want to share one thing about my public work as a, a poet, which was a joy. The hunger for poetry is real. And I feel as if, if we made poetry more available to people, if it were as available as, you know, CNN or billboards, um, I think people would just love it. Um, we, what we did in New York was we, 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 we put poets uh, at Grand Central Terminal, which is the large the large uh, place where all the trains come and go, all the subways come and go. It's the intersection of New York City. And we put tables of poets with, but we domesticated the spaces. So let's say if you had a table, you would have a desk and an, a, a chair and a chair next to you and a lamp and a rug and a typewriter and carbon paper and a little bell. It was something I originally created for my daughter's fair at school. Remember like in Peanuts, the, po the doctor is in, Lucy's booth? It was like that, the poet is in. And we, um, so all these poets were different places at, at these tables with lamps and typewriters. And we invited the public to come and have a poem written for them, really with them. Well, we had no idea what, what would happen, we thought, you know, the line formed quickly and within minutes, the wait was two and a half hours. Two and a half hours, people stood with strollers, with briefcases, with all sorts of things, waiting to sit down with a poet. And then the poet would ask questions of the person. Questions that would engage them and provide images from their deepest life. Tell me a dream you've had more than once. Tell me an article of a toy you used to love. If there were a, a door in the air right now and what you longed for was behind it, what would it be? And people said things like, my dead daughter's shoes, uh, my grandmother, you know. And then the poet would take this and transform what the poet heard using language and silence and musicality, but take what the person had given them and transform it, type it out, assign it, and then read it to the person. Everybody wept. The poets wept, the people wept, because it was their own lives given back, if you will, but put through this 
whatever, when we're being writers, this, this imaginative language, silence, place that gave them back something. And um, I wish we could do it every week. I wish there could be a permanent installation at Grand Central Terminal and everywhere around the world where people could experience the transformative act of poetry. Do you think there are things in our culture or cultures that are somehow resistant to poetry? Because the scene you're describing seems paradoxical in a way, both that there's a hunger for it, a, people responding to it, and yet, and yet it's so, it's like they're responding to a, a, a scarce resource that's well, never the there. Thing. So it's, is there something that we're not, why aren't we doing it more, or what's going it's on? It's not commodifiable. It's not a commodity. I mean, it was free. It was a gift. And, um, and we use carbon paper and typewriters so that it could be banged out with mistakes. And then we kept a copy and we gave a copy for free. So the thing about a poem is it can do anything. Nobody cares about it. No one's going to buy it. We want people to steal it. We want people to learn them by heart. We want them to cross borders and go into jails and, and move throughout the world without borders or tariffs or anything. No one's going to make any money from it. So we had to, it, it, was, it was funded by the MTA, and they just got some money from who knows where. They really did steal it from other programs. But um, it's still a dream I think we could do. I think that that's a lot of the reason, hmm. because no one's going to make any money from it. And they shouldn't. It's our original gift. Patrick, do you think this works differently at all on either side of the Atlantic, the public place of poetry or the way people relate to poetry in their common life? Yeah. So, like, from the age of five, when I started school, we were learning poetry off by heart in two languages, uh, just a few poems a week. And it was and poems that, like, I look to now. There's one poet, um, Martino Dirdoin, from the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland, and I remember one of the stanzas of one of his poems says, uh, And that is hard to translate because there's such elegance in the Irish. It's really difficult to find the words that work in English. But it's something like, um, as lonely as the tree is in the middle of a wood, so is the poet among the people. And so, like, I was eight. <laughs> and I was transfixed by this mm. poem. Uh, and there were so many po nationalist poems, poems about politics, poems about being a, a, a man in your 60s and not having found the love of your life yet. You're learning all of these things off and you haven't a clue what they are, but you're being midwifed, I think, into public language. And so, I, I mean, I've never lived in the United States, so I don't know. I, I, I think American contemporary poetry is extraordinary. I wait with eagerness every month for when I get poetry magazine through the through the post because it's uh, it's uh, I think the most vibrant poetry that I'm reading at the moment. Uh, it's very very exciting, and so I, I see this country as a place where poetry is really alive and really valued and really um, full of protest and pain and hope and um, form and artistry. So. I, it seems to me like it's very alive here, maybe in a different way than Ireland. Uh, certainly, uh, regularly. So after the Oma bomb, which was the worst bomb in terms of the amount of people that died from one bomb in 1998, it was a few months after the peace agreement, there was a commemoration and the poet from Dublin, Paul Durkin, was asked if he would respond. And he wrote a litany in four parts. And the first part of the litany just had the ages of everybody who died. What was it? Three months. 74, mm -hmm. six months, 19. And then the second part had um, the town where they all lived, you know, Oma, Madrid, London, Belfast. And he just delivered this with presence and attention. And um, I'm really glad to be from a culture that recognizes the containing value that poetry can have. And I mean that in the psychological sense that if the poem is doing its work, it, it, can con it can contain something without putting a border around it. And I think that's um, part of the hope of what poetry can do. But I see so many people in this country who are doing extraordinary things too, hmm. in the same way.
Was anybody in New York after the World Trade Centers came down? Because that's what happened in New York, remember? There in Washington Square Park and all these places, people put up these huge sheets and on the sheets they pinned all the missing posters and the missing posters were like Paul's poem because they would describe someone down to the marks on her body, you know? Um, they were all over New York, thousands and thousands of them. Um, but also people would write poems and people would put up poems. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, New Yorkers stood and read. That's what we did. We stood and read. We read what our, our neighbors and friends and everyone had written. We stood for hours, 20 minutes between. There would be a woman in stilettos and a briefcase standing next to you know, a homeless guy standing next to a kid holding his bike. You know, we were all together reading what was on these big sheets. And um, it was a sad day when they came down. It was a long time later. They were up for a long time. But that was public poetry, you know. The very names, but also people would write poems. They would put up a lot of poems. Hmm. I was thinking about that, the Zagajewski poem, the, mm. to, the try to praise the mutilated world yeah. poem, as one of the few poems that sort of became public. And he wrote that way before 9-11. Yeah. It just happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. Try to praise, well, he's Polish, right? Mm -hmm. So he knew, he knew about the mutilated world. Americans were very young, we young, in terms of world, you know, our, our experience. But I want to say one more thing. I do believe that out of that time, I heard one of the greatest poems in the world, and it was written by an 11-year-old. And um, I say it wherever I go, because it reminds me that poets like the, like the Hope and History Rhyme poem by, by Seamus Heaney, poets can also take on the, the vocation, if you will, of trying to be a visionary, trying to imagine a future that is different from what all the American-made movies are imagining for us, which is pretty much annihilation, right? I've seen, personally seen the, the Statue of Liberty drowned many times in movies. <laughs> New York City always goes, right? It just goes. We're all dead. It's over, over and over and over again. But what film can imagine the new world, the world where everybody puts down their guns, where everybody begins to to build housing that's wonderful and communal and real. So there's this beautiful poem by a young person named Cameron Penny, who's now 24 years old, the only poem he ever wrote. And uh, the afternoon of 9-11, Tony Hoagland called me up and said, listen to this. It's six lines. If you are lucky in this life, a window will appear on a battlefield between two armies when the soldiers look into the window, they don't see their enemies. They see themselves as children, and they stop fighting and go home and go to sleep. <laughs> when they wake up, the land is well again. Mm. That's beautiful. It's a vision. Mm -hmm. It's a vision. So that image of the people seeing through the, the window connects to something else I wanted to ask you all about, which is the, the, the theme of recognition, which as I was reading both of your works, and think it seemed to be something that was in common, um, a certain way of seeing or of recognizing something. And I was thinking about how recognition can mean a kind of mere intellectual recognition, like do you recognize that tune or something, but it can also be freighted with relational, moral implications to recognize another person, or that means to acknowledge them or to acknowledge them in a particular way. And it's also something that works in personal context, but also is incredibly important politically. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you all would say something about that, about the notion of recognition and maybe the the difficulty of it, because I was thinking in both of your works, it seems like you're interested in the, how hard it can be to recognize, for, 
to recognize something about yourself or to recognize another person or for two groups of people to recognize one another and how are there both internal and external barriers to that. Mm. Does that make sense? Does that? Yeah. You know, Padre works in a, um, I, I think it's great to talk about the reconciliation work you do. Mm. Yeah. I've got a couple of things to say, but, but Padre is really, this is his work. Well, so Northern Ireland, the north of Ireland, is a place in conflict about itself. Um, Claire Mitchell, a sociologist in Belfast, says that it's a meta-conflict because there's conflict about what the conflict's about, <laughs> which is such a clever way of speaking, but it's also so true for so many places. We're not unique about that. There's always conflict about what the conflict's about, and people blame each other beginning in different places. And one of the things that long-standing conflicts, some people say the troubles in Northern Ireland started in 1969, and somebody always in the room will go, what about 1607? Mm. You know? And so <laughs> that's kind of funny, but it's also kind of awful because it shows you how long these things can go on for. And one of the hopes in conflict reduction and conflict escalation or, or conflict transcendence is that we can find a way where we're not asking anymore, okay, let's find out exactly who's to blame. <laughs> and let's find out what does it mean to live here together? Yeah. And that doesn't involve justice and reparation and punishments, absolutely. It also does involve generosity and it involves the pain of compromise. It involves the pain of coming together. And it's such a human experience. Um, some of you will remember throughout the eighties, there was a campaign of kidnappings by Islamic Jihad in, in Lebanon. And at Karamila, um over Easter, we had a festival called Kara Fest. Kara is the Irish word for friend. And a reconciliation also means to restore friendship, conciliare from Latin. Um, so I invited Brian Keenan, who was one of the people from Ireland, a poet who had been kidnapped in 1986. And he was held captive for four and a half years, most of that time in a basement. And I think three of those four and a half years, he was blindfolded. Oh my God. Um, and uh, a whole load of the people who were captured wrote books when they left. And I read a whole load of those books in preparation. Brian's is the shortest and the most frightening because <laughs> he doesn't talk about fear. He makes you feel it. Uh, he goes elegantly from prose to poetry and back to prose again. And for a number of those years that he was incarcerated, he was, um, or he was kidnapped, he was, he was um, handcuffed to a radiator with uh, an Englishman called John McCarthy. And they were very different. One, a poor working class Protestant from Belfast, the other, a uh, public school boy from England, uh, planning a life in public service. And the two of them recognized each other in a way, like in the book, he speaks about the conversations they had about God. Brian Keenan had been to school with Van Morrison, so John McCarthy didn't know Van Morrison, so they spent a few days singing songs to him to go. And Brian said, when you're in that kind of environment, the life of the mind is escalated. And he said that's both amazing and also frightening because he could remember things that he didn't realize he could remember. He could go on trips, and he said they were true, like he was having out-of-body experiences, and he thought, will I come back? And it was a frightening thing that he realized. And I asked him to speak about friendship because I think friendship is one of the truest words. And he said, when you are, when everything is gone from you, when you are physically naked, tied up, and your sight is taken from you, mm. and you're next to somebody, you realize what it means to be recognized and to know that somebody knows you there. And I don't think I've heard a better description of reconciliation for a long time. Um, they, that requires to face your fear and then to face your fear knowing somebody's near you. Mm -hmm. They can't do it for you, but they're near you. So you're both alone and somehow in encounter as well. And that's, I think, what poetry, but also human presence can do. Us here, meeting each other, talking to each other in the queue for the bathroom or talking to each other, waiting to get some coffee, or in whatever ways, there can be all kinds of human encounters that can be very meaningful. So. I had a student who was blind, beautiful poet, and it was, I felt as if uh, recognized by him in a way I had never felt recognized by anyone mm. before. I felt we really knew each other. Yeah. If he never saw me. So, um, but how, does, how did that work? Well, first, or he was, why, he was why a very deep person, Daniel Simpson, 
it's his nature, you know, his soul was, was a soul who could recognize people. But I, we became friends after he was my graduate student. And, and then he, he, um, what's that illness, the ALS, so he, mm -hmm. he got that illness and it took him very quickly. Um, he had a brother, a twin, who was also blind. And they both had dogs and they're both poets. But, um, but this one person, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I was in class with him twice, but then we, we would meet and I would talk about his poems. He would read them to me. He would say them to me, I should say. But um, there was something about, there's this amazing book by a man called Jacques Lucimon. Has anyone ever heard of him? It's called Against the Pollution of the Eye. And the eye is the capital I. Against the pollution of the, and it's a very strange expression. Against the pollution of the eye. Jacques, he's French. He was blinded when he was eight. And he lived in Paris. And when the Nazis invaded Paris, he went to the people who were organizing the underground and said, I want to join. And they said, you can't, you're blind. He quickly formed the underground newspaper and had 100 people working for him within weeks. Um, eventually, in one day, the underground organization was betrayed by someone. A 1,000 people were arrested and sent to Buchenwald. Of those 1,000, he and one other person are the only two who survived. And he writes about being in Buchenwald, and he writes about poetry. And he said there was a day when all these men were in these freeze, this room, they were crowded in a room so that their skin, there wasn't a part of them that wasn't touching another person, like your man only. And they were freezing cold water was raining down on them. The water stopped and they had to stand for a long time. Uh, there was no drying with towels or anything. And suddenly someone began to recite a poem. And everybody, moved, impossibly moved to make space for this person who was reciting the poem. And then someone else recited a poem. And then someone else recited a poem. And then someone else. And all the poems were about what they loved. They were all praising the world, food and countryside and sunlight. And then someone began to recite a poem that was sad, and they all went, no, no. <laughs> and they wanted to praise the world again. We must praise, try to praise the mutilated world, right? Um, and it's this amazing chapter in his book, but one of the chapters in his book is about the gift of being blind. Um, and how he feels sorry for those of us who recited because we believe we can be fooled into believing in the surfaces of things, mm. as if they're true. Mm. And that's what David Simpson knew. Mm. He knew the surfaces aren't true. Mm. Simone Weil says, a beautiful woman can look into the mirror and convince herself that it is herself she sees. An ugly woman knows it is not. Oh. <laughs> um, I have a friend in Melbourne in Australia, Claire Coburn is his name, or her name, and she was, um, uh, as a young woman, uh, traveling throughout Europe, this is in the 70s, and she met and fell in love for the first time ever with somebody in Paris, and they were both doing their travels around Europe, and she, they had an arrangement to meet at the uh, American Express office in Rome two weeks later. And that was the whole thing. So everybody met there. At the, uh, yeah, everybody so met that's there. What she said. And you went into everybody you knew yeah. in those places. <laughs> that's what she said. Because people, and you, you kept these, you yeah. kept these arrangements perfectly because you know you couldn't. It wasn't easy to communicate with each other. And so she, anyway, two weeks later, she's there. She's waiting, waiting at the American Express office in Rome or building and uh, he doesn't turn up and she goes back the next day and he doesn't turn up and the next day again he doesn't turn up at which stage she then realizes okay he's not turning up um, and she's walking back to her pension where she's staying and she's devastated the whole world is falling apart she, the world was open to her as you know um, and suddenly it's all closed down and as she's walking by this young priest walks past her and he looks at her and he said coraggio 
courage. And she said, everything changed. She has no idea who she, who he was. Coraggio. One word. And uh, that's, that's the description of human encounter. I was walking across, what's, what do you call that little bridge over the road here? The little, you know. The little bridge over the road. The little bridge yes. over the road. Yeah, that's what we call it. Yeah, that's what I would call it. Um, just the other day, and uh, yesterday, I think. And as I was walking by, and I, I must have looked like I was thinking something funny. Because somebody walked by me and said, well, you look happy. And I wasn't actually. I was thinking about something that was troubling me, but I must have looked like maybe I smile when I'm upset. Um, <laughs> but then I found myself smiling. <laughs> she made something that wasn't there there ah. by that loveliness. And I thought, what a generous thing. What a way to go throughout the world. Um, making things that aren't there be there. Like the window. Yeah. The soldiers look into and they don't see their enemies. You know, there's a great thing about poetry too. You know, well, two things, the beautiful word courage. Poetry cares about accuracy and freshness of language. My friend and teacher, Stanley Kunitz used to say, we have to avoid cliches of speech, of course, but we also have to avoid cliches of thought and feeling. And poetry asks us to avoid those cliches because they're not true anymore, they're dead and the world goes dead when we use them. And to use language that's accurate all the time is a great uh, practice. They said of the poet Rilke, Rainier Maria Rilke, does he have to be a poet all the time? Someone once said when he left the party. <laughs> but, um, which I think is hilarious. But, 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 but what if we were? I mean, what if someone said, how are you? We didn't say good. How are you? Good. Um, but we just said something more accurate, you know? Um, and then we practice that everywhere. I mean, we see, of course, in this culture right now how language is being dumbed down. Um, and how we're accepting that language. We're allowing ourselves to legitimize it, even by accepting it. Um, language like, I don't even want to say it, um, you know, fake news. I don't want to say that again. I don't want to make it legitimate. Um, so to keep responding with, more, with greater accuracy is something. But the other thing poets can do, speaking of, Conflict is to find the enemy within ourselves. The age, you know, to be heroic is not the job of the poet, but constantly to implicate ourselves so that um, the process of having a poem come through you, implicating yourself, refusing to be uh, the exception or heroic in any way, but to be, well, last night, um, Palmer, Palmer, right? Parker, Parker Palmer was talking about vulnerability and to, to be vulnerable, to be the voice of vulnerability, I think is a great service to the world. I was remembering this poem I showed to my undergraduate poetry class by uh, Yehuda Amakai. Uh, Yehuda Amakai was a great Israeli poet. People are nodding, a great poet. Um, and he had this beautiful poem called The Places Where We Are Right which is, goes back to your call-in show. So I just wanted to read it. It's very short. The places where we are right, Yehuda Amakai. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled, like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Well, this was a man who was deeply upset by the conflict between the Israeli and Palestinians, um, very concerned about his nation's response to that. But a whisper, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Much po political poetry shouts. Um, much of it whispers, and much of it implicates the speaker. Of the political poetry that's moved me, it's the poems that have implicated the speaker and wondered um, into the way Amakai does.
Do you think there are special challenges around the set of things you're talking about here when it comes to religious language? Because I was thinking that the, both of you and your work are in different ways engaging with the language of religious traditions or religious language. And it well, seems by its nature, a lot of religious language is about formula. What is religious language? Saying the same thing. Really, what, what is religious? I don't think I use a religious language. What do you mean, my God? I mean, the language that people who think of themselves as religious or go to church or would say, I go to, I'm part of a religious community. But I don't do I don't that. What, I don't, first of all, I'm not religious. No, I'm not saying but for the, you, but I'm saying, but do I mean, you think there's a but, challenge around religious But the language, language. is what I'm asking about. Yeah. What is religious language? It, it's the language that plays a role in religious practice and religious ritual. But in or, our poems, what do you see as religious language? No, I wasn't thinking about your, uh, well... You were. The, 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 I would say, yeah, yeah, I would say the, the biblical stories are religious language. No, it's, no they're so, not. They're insofar, stories. Insofar as we have those stories, we have those stories, we know them, they've come down to us because certain groups of people collected them, remembered them, told them, and the context in which they were collected, remembered. But let's remembered, talk about those and, stories. And, and we're told was a context of Religious practice. They are religious language in that sense. I feel so strongly, and I understand what you're saying, but I feel so strongly those stories are mythic, deep, archetypical stories. So but, the, but that's consistent with what I'm saying. It mm-hmm. could have been that they were gathered, collected well, by those groups. Yeah, yes, but what I'm saying is they've lasted not because people, they've lasted because they're archetypical. Forget whatever religion, every culture has, a, has a, a flood story, right? Many cultures have goddesses uh, like Mary or Magdalene or these people, but the, the Western Judeo-Christian culture, we both love a woman named Aviva Zornberg. Does anybody here know of Aviva Zornberg? <gasps> Hallelujah, right? Write this name down. This is such an important person. Aviva, A-V-I-V-A-H. Zornberg, Z-O-R-N-B-E-R-G. And she does, she does Midrash, right? The Jewish tradition of Midrash is that these stories are not static, they are alive, and that the people who read them continue to write them. So that the Torah is a living document. John Keats, you know, said, well, Wallace Stevens, God and the imagination are one. Wallace Stevens said that. God and the imagination are one, right? Remarkable thing to say. So if you're writing Midrash, you go and you see what everyone else, you think about the silences in these stories, the great gaps, you know? What happened the day after Adam and Eve were forced out of paradise? Did they have sex? Was it pleasant? What happened? I mean, really interesting story. The story inside the silences, the silence inside the silences are what we can imagine into. That's why I refuse to have those stories be merely religious because they feel they belong to the Jews, they belong to Christians of all types, they belong to agnostics. I mean, open your computer. What do you see, literally? What pops up? The apple. (laughs) What is missing from that apple? A bite. That's Adam and Eve. The fall of humankind, we conjure every time that boing. (laughs) It's no mistake. They're embedded everywhere, these myths. They're everywhere. It doesn't matter what religion you are. The apple with the bite out of it, we just take for granted, but it's right there, right? The cause of all our suffering, and Eve was the problem, right? So that bling, so you know, we get to reinterpret that. We get to reimagine that, we have to. I mean, that's why I, I won't call them religious. I'll call them imaginative, I'll call them human, I'll call them spiritual even psychological, but Aviva, I'll be quiet after this, but Aviva writes these amazing books. The first one is called The Beginning of Desire, and it's a close reading of Genesis um, into these spaces. And the title comes from a Wallace Stevens poem, The Beginning of Desire. 
I urge you all to read it. You can also see her on YouTube. She's amazing. Um, so words like um, <clears throat> sin and repentance have um, lost their currency, I think, by overuse with a particularly unimaginative understanding of what they are. James Allison, um, the theologian, says that sin is an addiction to being less than ourselves, wow. which is such an extraordinary understanding about what that might mean as a public secular word. Um, repentance doesn't mean saying sorry or even weeping or being sad. Repentance, metanoia, to change direction. And surely be to God, repentance is a word of currency for today. None of you are allowed to steal this, but I'm working on a poem called It's Time to Put the Protest Back in Protestant. Because I want Protestant, I'm not a Protestant, but I want them to be more Protestant. I want them to take that word and go check it out. Look at our protest and to go deep into this faithful dismantling of the structures that dismantle us. And that is uh, of real interest to me. And I mean, I, I get the currency that you're speaking about, and I also get the protest about, about that Marie's giving, because these words um, need to be words that belong to the population, and that we need to find a way where we are in deep need of blessing and benediction, where we are <clears throat> in um, really important need of sacrament. Claire Coburn, when she was devastated, and that person said coraggio to her, that was sacrament. That was something audible, something that came from a mouth with a tongue and a voice box and a set of lungs that made something physical happen with air mm -hmm. and that changed something. And I think that's the kind of religion we need. And whether God needs to be involved in that is a delicious debate, but ultimately a distraction. Uh, what we need is now. And I think in the now, what we can do is find ways within which hopefully we can reignite with um, dynamism words that have really lost their potency. And often I think um, religion has done that. A few years ago, I was part of this um, fairly self-involved, but I loved it, um, artistic troupe in Belfast, put together by Pete Rollins. Lots of you might know Pete, um, <coughs> philosopher. The group was called Icon, I-K-O-N. We used to do theopoetic art and um, theodrama in a pub in Belfast. And one of the things we did was we had this outside um, uh, gospel rally during a big evening in Belfast when everybody was out at events. And we were there, we were dressed in a way as if we were preachers. And one guy had a blank chalkboard on the front and back. Huh. And it said, what must I do to be saved? Ah. Such a usual. And then he gave people chalk and said, right, really. And people wrote the most beautiful things, stunning. And then somebody got up who knew the cadence of preaching and they preached about moving from certainty to uncertainty, and it was beautiful. Mm. Such, I mean, and, and utterly self-involved, you know, so I should put that out there. Somebody once came and said, you know, all the icon people are just up their own asses. And we were like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm not saying that this was anything radical necessarily, but it was an attempt to say this stuff belongs to all of us. It mm. came from all of us. And it, if borders around it are going to limit the, the potency of what, what, about what's possible in public language, well then we're, we're limiting that too much. And I, I'm thrilled when I hear religious communities reignite that in a way where it goes far beyond their own limitations. Well, maybe that's a good place to open it up for questions or comments uh, from the, the, pop, the populi. Uh, there's a, a microphone here, and I think there's a hand in the back, in the very back. Um, you gave some examples about people who are suffering and the poems that came out of that, and I guess the inspiration that we can take from that. And I want to know about poem. I want to know: Are there poems for the people, the ordinary people, who were, you know, looking the other way while their neighbors are being rounded up? Uh, because I'm not really worried so much about getting sent to a concentration camp, but I'm a little worried about becoming like a regular Nazi or whatever. So yeah. if you have some poems about that or can think of some, I would appreciate that. Mary Oliver has an extraordinary poem about traveling. And she it's a poem about a blackbird, as many of her poems are. But interspersed in the stanzas, um, she's describing this woman who she's seeing who is um, 
cleaning the toilet in the airport where she's working. And it goes back and forth. And it's an uncomfortable poem um, because the counterpointing between what seems like a simple nature poem with the beautiful hair of this woman who's um, cleaning the toilet and her hair falls out and, and tumbles down. And, I, and I, I think that's a really, that's a poem I think about a lot. Um, so it, while that's not the entirety of Mary Oliver's work, um, that certainly is a poem that's really disturbing because it, it challenges complacency. You know, it's interesting when you said we spoke about poems that came out of suffering, but to be, I think, you know, remember when Mother Teresa came to the United States and she said, I've never seen such suffering as I've seen here. And I think we suffer from a numbness, which is what you acknowledge by asking that question. And what you said was extraordinary. You said, I'm not afraid of going to a concentration camp. Is that really true? Sure, but I don't think... No, wait, wait, wait. Just, you, you said, well, sure, but... I don't really think it will happen. It's not... But that's interesting. Nobody did to them either. My friend Jason, who's now dead, said, all the Jews on the way to their showers are going, I don't believe this is happening. <laughs> um, you know, but it's, it, we never think it. We can't believe what's happening now. How many times have you said to your friends, I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe what's happening. That's what we say, and it's happening. So it's already happening. How do we speak to it? You know, so what's interesting is that it's to question what we say. Like, to, what I loved was what you said. I want you to write the poem that says, I'm not afraid of going to a concentration camp. It won't happen to me. And just follow that and see what happens. Or, I'm afraid of becoming a Nazi and then follow that. In other words, you write the poem you want to read. That's what we all have to do. We have to try to write the poem we want to read. And not that we know it, because the poem will tell us when we write it what we need to hear. But truly, I want you to write those poems and then share them with us. Any other comments or questions? I was curious, some of what you guys shared, there was the very strong reaction to the concept of this isn't religious poetry, this isn't religious language. But it was interesting, some of the things you guys shared, you talked about that poetry is concerned with accuracy and fresh language, and that it is an imaginative, spiritual, faithful thing. And I, I guess I'm just curious from you guys, do you feel like that actually undergirds your beliefs, whether you would label that religious at all? Do you, would you consider that maybe at the root of what we long for in religion or what we recognize in religion? And you can either give it that name or not. It just seems very apparent through your conversation and your poetry. So I'm just curious if you guys think of that almost taking place in place of your religion. I'm the one who reacted so strongly. So let me just say, because I, I think we're very different people. When people use religion in relationship to my work, I just, I don't, religion to me means organized. It means, have, it means a kind of um, constriction of belief, cert certainty, actually, or a kind of, you know, creed, which I don't believe in. So, but I, but as Micah well knows, I just try to rip those stories from him um, to say that these are stories that are human stories that belong to us all. Um, and I, I haven't reconciled that word religion myself. I'm just still reactive to it, as you can see. Um, so I, I apologize. Um, even the word spiritual has become kind of sickening, right? If you look on the dating sites, anybody looked on a dating site lately? Not religious, but spiritual, people say. Um, it's become a cliche. What's another word? I love your question. How can we freshen that language? I think that's what Padre was getting at. Um, at the heart of your question is some great imagination. If, if poetry were religion, what would its doctrines be? Um, <laughs> I wonder, though, would I um, be reluctant about the poetry of the religion of poetry? <laughs> because I think anything that seeks to confine um, inherently falls at its own dagger. And while poetry works in form, poetry also celebrates form breaking and form innovation. And what we thought is strict form, a sonnet, for instance, like there are many examples of 11 line sonnets in the great history of sonnet writing. 
So sonnets weren't always 14. <laughs> the Volta moved from line 13 up to line 9. So what we, even what we think is certain isn't. I, I mean, speaking about religion, I'm a theologian, that's my training. So I, I try to be religious and I try to like that word. And I try to believe and I try to act. And when people say things like, I'm just concerned about the demise of the biblical family, I want to go, when's the last time you read the Bible? <laughs> Ask any of the Tamars what biblical family looks like. Ask Lot's wife, she who was turned into a preservative by the God that she turned and accused. This is what religion does. And so um, form that is unbreakable, I think, will always... Um, we want to break us. out. Yeah, we, we want to break, break out of. I think that's part of poetry is to do that with that. So I really like what you're saying. And uh, what about the word faith or the language of faith? Because this is the festival of faith <laughs> and writing. Do you does the concept or the language of faith land with either of you, or how does it land? Well, faith in Irish doesn't exist as a noun. It exists only as a verb. And I. That's why we all should speak Irish. <laughs> and does it mean something more like the English believe or something more like the English to keep the faith, to trust? Because the English verb faith can mean something like that. I, I mean, I am, I'm so nervous about the word faith. I, I really do. I mean, I think Jesus is to blame. You know, somebody would come up, this woman pushed through a crowd, extraordinary bravery. She would not have technically been allowed outside of her own home. She pushes through a crowd. She seeks to keep herself in secrecy. And then when she falls at his feet, when she's kind of called out, it's, and, and there's this beautiful moment. He calls her daughter, so there's belonging and reciprocality and being seen. It's a stunning story. And, and then the way it's said in the English, uh, your faith has saved you. Like, I just find that to be so flaccid. But to me, you know? that, that, that's connection. Yeah. I mean, this is, yes. I guess, what I want to say, that the hierarchy of religion I reject Right from the beginning, like God is up and God is male, of course, all that, ridiculous. But the rest of creation, the rest of the planets, the galaxies, the world, we used to think this was solid, remember? We had faith in that. Now we know it's not. Now we know that what, how, what, what percentage of everything that is is dark matter we can't even perceive. I have deep respect for the mystery of, of everything. I have deep, humble respect. I know nothing. And Eliot said, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. And that's my faith, you know, not to hope, not to have faith in anything that's beyond, that, that, to, that I could say that we actually try to, re Meister Eckhart says, we make God so small, so small, small enough for us to understand God. There's no understanding. Just to be open, radically open to the, the, what connects everything. You know, the stones, the stars, the animals, us as animals, the trees. Now we know trees aren't lonely in the forest. They're all connected. They're feeding each other. They're helping each other. Now we know, we just learned, what, two weeks ago, that dark matter webs connect the, the, the galaxies, are connected by webs we can't see. That, to me, is, what can you say? I mean, just bow to that, you know? So the mystery, that's it. The faith has this certainty that I just can't believe in. But it doesn't Certain. mean I don't feel. Yeah. I think certainty, but also concrete practice. Yeah. So I don't think that woman who pushed through the crowd believed that Jesus was the second person of the Holy Trinity, right. incarnate in human form, born right. of the Virgin Mary. Right. I think she had guts. Go your guts of Savior. She knew he had energy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, a great place to end, so shall we Enormous thanks to Michael Lott, Padre Gotuma, and Marie Howe. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the festival's archives.